Well, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Welcome to the weekly review without Roman. Roman Reimer will be here soon, but I'm going to be playing some of his choices for music and listening, getting your uh, brain acclimated to what's going on in the world right now. That was L7 with I Came Back to Bitch. 
I'm supposed to do a trigger warning. Um, I, I haven't listened to the uh, auditory things that Roman has chosen out for you today. And I'm sure they're all going to be amazing and wonderful. Uh, but uh, sometimes they're very sad and there might be triggered. There might be things. Uh, I came back to bitch. I hey, I, I love that. I, it works on so many levels. Uh, here we go. This is the first thing. This is coming from Hotwire number 39, Kavanaugh Resistance, Voices from Hambach Forest. Crime Think... Oh, presents its weekly podcast on international news from an anarchist perspective. So we're playing that right now on mutinyradio.fm on the weekly review with Roman Reimer soon to come. Enjoy. And neither should anybody else. Police kill another black man in Portland, Oregon. Plus, a letter from one of the anarchists arrested defending the Hambacher Forest in Germany on this episode of The Hotwire, a weekly anarchist news show brought to you by The Ex-Worker, with me, The Rebel Girl. And back by popular demand, it's me, Alanis. What? Alanis? What a nice surprise. But what's all this popular demand talk about. You of all people should know that here inside the Crime Think podcasting barracks, we don't make demands. And that homogenous, two-dimensional notion of the people that the word popular is based on actually serves to erase important social antagonisms that can broaden our understanding of how power itself flows and is reproduced throughout society. Being an anarchist doesn't just mean activism against the latest horror committed by the state. It means challenging the way authority shapes the everyday relationships around us to restrict our freedom of what and who we can be. It means analyzing what social policies we are into. I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry I said popular demand. It was just a turn of phrase. It's not like there was actually a formal demand, let alone a popular one, that made me want to hop back in the host seat which incidentally is feeling more like a hot seat right now. There was just this one single comment about last week's hotwire on anarchistnews.org where someone said, okay, but revive the ex-worker, please. And it made me miss when Claire and I would do the hotwire. Hmm. The comments on anarchistnews.org. Yes, I think I've heard of those. And from everything I've heard, you're off the hook because it's not exactly what one would describe as popular. But hey... Another thing. Oh, no. What now? Wow. Somebody's cranky this morning. It's just like, geez, you do an anarchist podcast for years, and as soon as you take a break for a few months, the new host scrutinizes every word you say. Maybe I should revive the ex-worker. I sure miss my monthly dose of anarchist theory and history, but all I was going to say is, where's the riot dog this week? Uh, I was going to ask you the same thing. Riot dog! Here, riot dog! Here! Riot, riot, riot! Ooh, that sure was spooky. Well, it is October. Oh, that's right. The fall. Prison walls fell at three different prisons after the 7.5 magnitude earthquake that devastated Indonesia on Monday. In Palu City, over 500 prisoners took advantage of the prison's collapsed walls right after the earthquake and tsunami to escape the rising waters. At another overcrowded facility in Palu, 
prisoners themselves broke through to the outside. And in Dongala, the local jail was set on fire, and more than 300 detainees are on the run. And Godspeed to them. We applaud every prison break. But this is especially uplifting news after the horrifying story we reported on last Hotwire about the two cops in South Carolina that waited to be rescued from on top of a transport van while the prisoners below them, shackled in the van, were left to drown in Hurricane Florence's floodwaters. Prisons and police are an unnatural, unnecessary disaster. And allow us to take this moment to remember that this isn't just human beings that died as a result of their captivity during Florence. Over three million chickens, turkeys, and pigs also drowned. From hearing about the hog feces lagoons that have flooded the Carolina riverways to hearing about undocumented workers who were fired for being a day too late for work after evacuating from the hurricane, and now hearing about the unimaginable number of quote-unquote live inventory that drowned. Industrial animal agriculture is cruel to animals, cruel to workers, and cruel to the earth, all for the sake of profit. That's capitalism for you. And the state isn't any less lethal. In Portland, Oregon, while the occupation against murderous campus police at Portland State University continues to grow, elsewhere in the city, cops just couldn't hold back from killing yet another black man. On Sunday, police killed Patrick Kimmins after shooting off, according to witnesses, over a dozen rounds. The following day, protesters shut down the intersection where the police murdered him and left a memorial with candles, flowers, and signs demanding justice for Patrick Kimmins. We caught up with one participant at the occupation of the intersection to hear what's been going on. Hi, who are we speaking with? And what has the scene been like since the shooting on Sunday? I go by Tweak. I'm DJ underscore TW34K on most social media. I'm very active with street-level anti-fascist organization. I have lived in Portland for most of my adult life. And notably, I live only a few blocks uh, from where Patrick Kimmins, who was a husband and a family man and a father of four, was murdered by the Portland Police Bureau. That's the PPB. I also want to be clear that I'm not the spokesperson for this vigil or direct action. It's first and foremost a memorial that is led jointly by many uh, community groups here in Portland, such as Black Lives Matter, PDX Resistance, and uh, many different local anarchist and anti-fascist groups. Uh, and most importantly, of course, the family of the man who went by Pat Pat. He was shot 12 times in the back. And another man of color who was a bystander, the scene was also shot four times and is, uh, according to the recent reports that I'm aware of, currently listed in critical condition. The action at 4th and Oak and uh, 4th and Harvey Milk Street, which is where Patrick Kimmons was actually shot and killed by the Portland Police Bureau, started on September 30th, which was Sunday and has carried on ever since. I should also note that on Saturday, the 6th of October, there is a march which is being planned by the family of the deceased that is supposed to begin at 3rd and Washington in downtown Portland. As far as the Portland Police Bureau, uh, ever since the shooting of Patrick Kimmons, they were in attendance at the rally on the first day. There was at least six or seven officers there with loaded uh, weapons. Uh, the police left shortly thereafter on the 30th and have not been back to this particular uh, community vigil and protest action. There have been a regular stream of provocateurs, fascists, proud boys, other just random community members, drunk people uh, trying to provoke, but nothing too serious. Uh, on the morning of October 2nd, several vehicles have plowed through uh, the memorial 
and destroyed some of the signs and other things that were set up there. The one who calls himself the mayor of Portland, Oregon, has released a cowardly statement is very likely going to take absolutely no action whatsoever towards the Portland Police Bureau or the officers who murdered this man and potentially uh, killed a second person as well. Our community loves Patrick Kimmons and his family, and we will not forget his execution at the hands of the Portland police. And if you are in the Portland area or anywhere near Portland, Oregon, you are welcome to come down, bring candles, show solidarity, bring roses and flowers and anything else, and join us uh, at the ongoing vigil at 4th and Harvey Milk Street right downtown. Uh, And again, there's also a march on October 6th, which is a Saturday in memorial for Patrick Kimmons. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Peace and love to you all. Solidarity forever. Anarchy forever. Black Lives Matter. Meanwhile, the Occupation Against Immigration and Customs Enforcement at City Hall in Portland officially ended on Monday. Its initial iteration in June was the first such encampment in the wave of occupations of ICE buildings that took place across the country this summer. While it's always sad to see a resistance commune end, sometimes they reach their limits and can't gain any more ground. However, the anti-ICE occupation continues to make an impact even after its dissolution. The endurance of a conflictual tactic is not its only worthwhile measure. How it spreads is just as important. In last episode, one of the occupiers we interviewed at Portland State University took direct inspiration from the ICE occupation. And now there are multiple occupations cropping up across the city. Over the last week, millions of people followed the confirmation hearings for would-be Supreme Court Justice and supremely sketchy sexual assaulter Brett Kavanaugh. While we appreciate all of the powerful conversations about sexual violence and gender oppression that the hearings have catalyzed around the country, building on the momentum of the increasingly widespread hashtag MeToo movement, as anarchists were interested in asking some different questions from the ones we're hearing on the news, or even from many feminist activists, to shift the dialogue toward a deeper critique of the structures of power in our society, we present a recently published article from the Crime Think blog titled, Kavanaugh shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. Neither should anyone else. Last week, millions watched the dramatic hearings pitting Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh against Christine Blasey Ford, who courageously narrated her experience of being sexually assaulted by him decades ago. Once again, Americans were confronted with the brazen entitlement of the male power establishment. The hearing stirred up traumatic memories for countless survivors, ratcheted up partisan tensions, and catalyzed furious responses from feminists and progressives in view of the implications of the court shifting further to the right. With Roe v. Wade hanging in the balance, critics point out the horrifying irony of an unrepentant sexual predator potentially casting the deciding vote to block abortion access to millions of women and others across the country. We applaud the courage of Christine Blasey Ford and everyone who has supported her through this ordeal. We don't want to see Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court either. But should any man be able to wield that much power over the lives of millions? What if the Trump administration manages to find a judge with the same views but no history of sexual assault? Would that render the confirmation process legitimate and the decisions of the Supreme Court beyond question? Should people of conscience accept the sovereignty of a nine-person elite over the most intimate spheres of their lives? If you don't think so either, you may already be an anarchist. 
What does it look like to resist the nexus of rape culture and far-right power that Kavanaugh represents? The usual suspects propose the conventional solutions. Calling representatives, canvassing for Democrats, taking to the streets to hold signs indicating our displeasure. But even if these efforts forestall Kavanaugh's nomination this time around, they won't disrupt the relations of power in which hundreds of millions are held hostage to the machinations of a small, mostly male elite. A victory against this particular nominee would only reset the clock. Eventually, Trump will force through a new candidate who will rule the same way Kavanaugh intends to. And even if Trump is impeached or a Democrat is elected and a progressive nominee is sworn in, we're still in the same place we started, vulnerable to the whims of a judicial aristocracy and alienated from our own power and potential. We need an approach that challenges the foundations of the system that puts us in this situation in the first place. Meanwhile, progressive critics have demanded an FBI investigation as a way to give official weight to Ford's testimony and hopefully discredit Kavanaugh as a candidate. They point out, reasonably, that Trump's claim to be in favor of law enforcement while hesitating to order the FBI to comprehensively look into Kavanaugh's sexual misconduct reveals his hypocrisy. But this logic positions progressives and feminists as the honest proponents of law enforcement and police as protectors of women. Have we learned nothing from decades of rape crisis organizers explaining how the police and courts so often serve to re-traumatize survivors, putting them on trial rather than those who attack them? Can we ignore the feminists of color from Incite to Angela Davis, who call on us to remember that police and prisons do not stop rape, but rather intensify poverty, racism, and injustice? Democrats are trying to recast themselves as the real law and order candidates. This is not so much a change in strategy as a revealing of their true colors. Between the blue of blue states and the blue in Blue Lives Matter, it's only a difference in tone, not content. In TV newsrooms and around water coolers across the country, the discussions about this case have focused on how believable or credible Ford's testimony is versus that of Kavanaugh. Taking this approach, we become an entire nation of judges and juries, debating evidence and scrutinizing witnesses, choosing whose experience to legitimize and whose to reject. This adversarial framework has always benefited those who wield privilege and hold institutionalized power. Even if we rule in favor of Ford, we are reproducing the logic of a legal system based in patriarchal notions of truth, judgment, and objectivity, a way of understanding reality that has always suppressed the voices and experiences of the marginalized, preserving the conditions that enable powerful men to sexually abuse others with impunity. Unfortunately, calls for FBI investigations reinforce this logic and legitimize the murderous regime of surveillance, policing, and prisons as a means of obtaining justice rather than a source of harm. Rejecting the rape culture that Kavanaugh and his supporters represent necessarily means rejecting the patriarchal institutions through which they wield power. If we legitimize any of those institutions in the course of trying to be pragmatic in our efforts to discredit specific officials, we will only undercut our efforts. One step forward, two steps back. This has broader implications for how we address rape culture in general. When we reduce the issue of sexual violence to the question of whether specific men have committed sexual assault or abuse, we frame these as crimes carried out in a vacuum by deviant individuals. As a result, entertainment corporations and government agencies can pretend to solve the problem by finding men who do not have sexual assaults on their record, rather than addressing the misogynistic dynamics and power imbalances that are inherent in government, the workplace, and society at large. 
This confuses the social question of addressing sexual violence with the matter of finding candidates and nominees who present a clean resume. Should they later turn out to also be implicated in doing harm, they can be replaced, just as the electoral system replaces politicians every few years without ever giving the rest of us self-determination. Rape, abuse, and other forms of violence are a systemic problem within our society, not a matter of individual deviance. We need a way of addressing rape culture that cuts to the root. Are there other ways that we can think about how to respond to the threat that a judge like Kavanaugh poses to our bodies and communities? As anarchists, we reject the idea that judges or politicians deserve the authority to determine the course of our lives. Rather than only trying to pressure leaders to vote one way or the other in a winner-take-all system that reduces us to spectators in the decisions that affect us, we propose solutions based in direct action, taking power back into our own hands by enacting our needs and solving our problems ourselves without representatives. As long as legislators and judges can determine the scope of our reproductive options, our bodies and lives will be subject to the shifting winds of politics rather than our own immediate needs and values. Instead of validating their authority by limiting ourselves to calling for better legislators and judges, we should organize to secure and defend the means to make decisions regarding what we do with our bodies, regardless of what courts or legislators decree. In practice, this could mean networking with healthcare workers who have the necessary skills and sharing them widely, stockpiling and manufacturing the supplies we need for all sorts of healthcare, defending spaces where we can operate our own clinics, fundraising resources to secure access to health care and birth control options for all, regardless of ability to pay, and developing models for reproductive autonomy that draw on past precedents but address our current problems. We can do our best to render the decisions of would-be patriarchs like Kavanaugh irrelevant. All this has already happened before. For example, from the late 60s through the early 70s, the Jane Network, a vast clandestine effort centered in Chicago, provided illegal abortions to thousands of women. The fact that abortion was already accessible to so many women was a major factor in compelling the U.S. court system to finally legalize abortion access in order to be able to regulate it. The most effective way to pressure the authorities to permit us access to the resources and care we need is to show them that it's already happening. Unfortunately, when it comes to standing up to elites like the Supreme Court and the police who enforce its decisions, there are no shortcuts. We can extend the logic of direct action to every area in which a right-wing Supreme Court might inflict harm, from environmental destruction to indigenous sovereignty to labor organizing. All of the rights we have today are derived from the grassroots struggles of ordinary people who came before us, not from the wisdom or generosity of powerful officials. FBI investigations and court processes will not end sexual violence or bring healing to survivors. To strike at the root causes that enable the Kavanaugh's of the world to do harm, we have to tear up patriarchy and toxic masculinity by the roots. This involves a process of ongoing education around sexuality, consent, and relationships, developing strategies to intervene when we see violence of any kind in our communities, creating culture that models alternative visions of gender and intimacy, and reimagining justice as restorative or transformative rather than adversarial. We can see just how pervasive the problem is when we look at the narratives that underpin support for Kavanaugh. Leading up to the hearings, supporters focused on portraying him as a devoted family man. As multiple allegations of sexual assault surfaced, many commentators framed the question as a contradiction between Kavanaugh the loving husband and father 
and Kavanaugh the callous rapist, implying that these roles are mutually exclusive. Yet gendered violence continues at epidemic levels within proper heterosexual families. Shocking rates of spousal rape and domestic violence permeate American marriages, while statistics on child sexual abuse indicate that family members make up a substantial proportion of abusers. Bill Cosby, the archetypical television husband and father, was recently sentenced to prison for drugging and sexually assaulting numerous women. The false assumption that a history of sexual assault is somehow incompatible with adhering to the conventions of heterosexual family life reflects the persistence of patriarchal norms and homophobia, as well as a refusal to honestly address the extent of gendered violence in our society. No Supreme Court would solve this problem, even if it consisted of the nine wisest, gentlest people in the world. When it comes to social change, there's no substitute for widespread grassroots action. Some American feminists have drawn parallels between the Kavanaugh case and the hashtag not him movement in Brazil, in which women are rallying against a Trump-esque misogynist politician running for president. The struggle of Brazilian feminists to resist the extreme right threat deserves our attention and support. Yet, as anarchists, we can take that model further in responding to the Kavanaugh nomination. Rather than not him, we can assert not anyone. No man, rapist or not, deserves the power to decide the reproductive options for millions of women and others. Perhaps the more appropriate slogan for the struggle against patriarchy in the Supreme Court would be the rallying cry of Argentina's 2002 rebellion. Que se vayan todos. Get rid of all of them. They all must go. The sooner we can do this, the more we can delegitimize the authority of Supreme Courts to shape our lives, and the more powerful and creative we can make our alternatives, the less we will have to fear from the Trumps and Kavanaugh's of the world. Let's build a society that enables everyone to engage in genuine self-determination, in which no man can decide what all of us may do with our bodies, in which no state can take away our power to shape our future. In this week's Repression Roundup, the Olympia Solidarity Network, Ali Sal, has launched a campaign against businesses that contract with the local private security firm, Pacific Coast Security, PCS. PCS operates nightly patrols in downtown Olympia, displacing and criminalizing people sleeping in alcoves and alleyways. This is a kind of second-wave repression that Olympia's houseless population is facing after the closure of the Artesian Commons, which we discussed last Hotwire. You can express solidarity with houseless people in Olympia by calling Cooper Realty slash Orca Construction, one of the businesses that contracts with PCS, at 360-491-4580 and demand that they cancel their contract with Pacific Coast Security. There's a sample script in our show notes. And speaking of orcas, at least half of the world's orca populations are doomed to extinction due to toxic and persistent pollution of the oceans, according to a major new study released by an international team of researchers. Although PCBs have been banned for decades, they are still leaking into the seas. 
they become concentrated up the food chain. And as a result, orcas, the top predators, are the most contaminated animals on the planet. Worse, their fat-rich milk passes on very high doses to their newborn calves. PCB concentrations found in orcas can be 100 times safe levels and severely damage reproductive organs, cause cancer, and damage the immune system. You might be wondering why this might be in the repression roundup, but if being poisoned into extinction by modern civilization isn't repression, we don't know what is. There are extraction battles being waged all across Central and South America as communities fight to protect their homes and surrounding ecosystems. Despite the odds, the Guatemalan group La Puya Peaceful Resistance stands out as an example of how women can halt the spread of these projects. La Puya has, for now, completely stopped mining operations in their community. Community leaders listed five key ingredients to their success. One, include everyone, women and men, people of different ages and religions, etc., in all planning and activities. Two, no direct dialogue with the company. Three, develop collective processes with no single leader. Four, fight simultaneously in the courts and in the streets. And five, strengthen local culture to strengthen unity, identity, and resistance. Three environmental activists are believed to be the first people to receive jail sentences for protesting against fracking in the UK. The three were sentenced to 15 months last Wednesday after being convicted of causing a public nuisance. Another defendant was given a 12-month suspended sentence after pleading guilty to the same offense. The four people were charged after taking part in a four-day direct action protest that blocked a convoy of trucks carrying drilling equipment from entering the Preston New Road fracking site near Blackpool. Despite the arrests, a group of anti-fracking activists are continuing their campaign and blocked the entrance to the shale gas site near Blackpool this past Monday. A group of nonprofits is organizing a mass bailout of women and children in New York City, aiming to bail up to a thousand people out of Rikers Island and the Horizon Juvenile Detention Center. The bailout began this past Monday, you can learn more at MassBailout.com. A Food Not Bombs activist has been imprisoned in the Philippines by the Duterte regime on trumped-up drug charges. We have a link to a fundraiser in our show notes. Last year in the UK, 15 people grounded a deportation charter flight for 10 hours to prevent it from taking off. Now, the state has charged these brave individuals with terrorism-related offenses that could result in life imprisonment. They were all due to stand trial in March of this year, but after a series of agonizing delays, the trial was adjourned. The retrial began this past Monday, and we'll bring you updates as the trial progresses. A report on its going down from a prisoner solidarity noise demonstration in Raleigh, North Carolina, says... At least four NC prisoners are currently being held in segregation for their role in allegedly organizing participation in the August prison strike. The Solidarity Demo took place on Monday, with over a dozen people holding up banners that read, No Retaliation for Striking Prisoners, Solidarity with Prison Rebels, and one listing the strikers' demands, including an end to the punishment the alleged organizers are facing, that is, solitary confinement. If you weren't one of Monday's noble solidarity demonstrators, don't worry. You can still support the alleged strike organizers by calling the director of North Carolina's Department of Public Safety at 919-733-2126. 
and telling him to move the prisoners out of segregation and remove the infraction charges against them. We have a sample script you can use in our show notes. On February 1st, 2017, inmates in the C building at Vaughn Correctional Center in Delaware took control of their unit and held staff hostage in an uprising that lasted over 18 hours. They called the media, released a list of demands, and explained their actions as motivated by their conditions of confinement, as well as the election of Donald Trump as president. One prison guard, Stephen Floyd, was killed by inmates during the uprising. Eight months later, the Vaughn 17 were indicted and charged with murder for the death of the corrections officer. The Vaughn prison rebels will be tried in groups with trials beginning soon, and we have the following statement from the revolutionary abolitionist movement about court support. Ram NYC, Ram Philadelphia, and Vaughn 17 Support Philly are organizing court support for the brave comrades inside the walls, the Vaughn 17. We are calling on prison abolitionists and revolutionary comrades to attend the trial in a strong showing of solidarity in Wilmington, Delaware. The first group starts trial October 8th, and the final group starts February 11th, 2019. We are now calling for volunteers for the trial starting October 8th. For jury selection starts October 8th and the trial October 22nd. We will be holding banners outside the courthouse, attending the trial, and as the main supporters in that room, taking notes on the proceedings. Join this orientation to find a date to come and to find out how to do court support. Come show the prison rebels they are not alone. Get in touch with us for any questions about court support. Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement at ProtonMail.com Ohio prosecutors are seeking an execution date for Keith Lamar, who is a survivor of the Lucasville uprising. Keith Lamar's lawyers state that his conviction rests on prisoner testimony, which is not independently corroborated. There is no physical or video evidence linking him to the crimes, and he has always maintained his innocence. Supporters are calling for amnesty and recognition that the state was ultimately responsible for the deaths that occurred at their maximum security prison in April of 1993. If the Supreme Court of Ohio ignores his lawyer's motion, Keith will likely be given an execution date for the year 2023. Unlike Keith Lamar, Greg Curry did not receive the death sentence for his supposed role in the Lucasville uprising, but instead is serving life without the possibility of parole. Greg is seeking counsel to help get him out of solitary confinement and out of the Supermax Ohio State Penitentiary that he is being held in. Most prisoners must accept being housed in the atypical conditions of the Supermax by signing a waiver. Greg did not sign the waiver, but regardless, he is being held there indefinitely. We have a link to a new poster about Greg Curry on our site, as well as his address to write him. And if you can help Greg's legal battle in any way, please get in touch with his support campaign through his website, gregcurry.wordpress.com. Lastly, we want to remind you that anarchist prisoner Casey Brezik will go before the parole board for the first and only time in November, and he needs your help. Thoughtful and well-composed letters to the parole board by people who care about Casey and are willing to offer support to him during his transition back to life on the outside can make it more likely that Casey will be released. Please write a letter on Casey's behalf. It will only take a few minutes, but it could make a big difference. We have a sample letter in our show notes. 
And now for Prisoner Birthdays and next week's news. There's a bunch of Prisoner Birthdays this week, and we wanted to mention that one great way we keep up with how we stay in touch with our comrades on the inside is through the monthly Rebel Prisoner's Birthday Calendar. It comes out each month and includes the birthdays and short bios for a bunch of political prisoners and prison rebels. Here's what it says for this week. October 4th is the birthday of Jamil Abdullah Alamin, formerly H. Rap Brown, who was a black liberation leader serving as chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and later the Justice Minister of the Black Panther Party. He went underground in 1970 after being indicted for inciting a riot that broke out after an attempt was made on his life, which left him with fragments of shotgun pellet in his forehead. In the 90s, Elamine was once again the target of a campaign of state harassment, which included recanted statements from people that the police had pressured into pointing the finger at Alamine for all sorts of crimes. He was eventually wrongfully convicted of murder in the year 2000. October 6th is the birthday of another black liberation militant, Mike Davis Africa, who is one of the Move 9, the imprisoned black eco-revolutionaries each serving 100 years after being framed for the murder of a Philly cop in 1979. He is a loving father, grandfather, and the partner of Debbie Sims Africa, who was released from prison in June of this year. Also celebrating his birthday on October 6th is David Gilbert, whom the Rebel Prisoners calendar describes as a founding member of Columbia University Students for a Democratic Society and a member of the Weather Underground. Following 10 years underground, he was arrested with members of the Black Liberation Army and other radicals following an armed robbery in 1981. David Gilbert is also well known for his HIV-related prison activism and continued authorship from behind bars, including his memoirs, Love and Struggle. And last to celebrate his birthday this week is Malik Bey of the Virgin Island Five, anti-imperialist prisoners, each serving eight consecutive life sentences after being tortured into false confessions. Malik's sentence was vacated in 2001, but he remains behind bars. In our show notes, we have addresses along with a useful guide for writing prisoners from New York City anarchist Black Cross. And now for next week's news, our list of events that you can plug into in real life. The alt-right Resist Marxism group is returning to Providence, Rhode Island this Saturday, and anti-fascists are calling for a counter-demonstration at the Rhode Island State House at 10 a.m. October 6th. Follow Ocean State Against Hate at RIAgainstH8 on Twitter for more updates. And in Montreal on October 7th, there's a mass anti-racist demonstration after the victory of a xenophobic right-wing party in Quebec's provincial elections on Monday. Meet Sunday at 3 p.m. in Barry Square. Also on October 6th, defenders of the Hambach Forest in Germany's Rhineland are calling for a mass demonstration starting at 12 noon at the Bure, that's B-U-I-R, train station. This demonstration is in response to the coal company RWE and its police servants continuing to evict forest defenders despite an activist journalist falling to his death amidst last week's evictions. The demonstration is also a precursor to a week of civil disobedience to save the forest from October 25th to 29th. If you're in Europe, try to make it. The Hambacher Forest is really magical. And if you're not convinced of how magical it is, listen to episode 37 of The Ex-Worker, which is all about the occupation. And speaking of Hambi... The Rhineland Anarchist Black Cross has released a letter from a jailed anarchist who is only going by the name Winter. They were arrested when the treehouse evictions began two weeks ago. It reads, You lock us up and punish us. 
because we think and act independently and decide ourselves what is right and what isn't. This is what makes us human. Ethics, autonomy, independence, empathy, thoughts about justice for the future, our unity of body, soul, and spirit. How can you demand that I deny my humanity or subordinate myself to the profit motive of a single company or power-hungry politicians? How can you demand that I should act as if tomorrow didn't matter, even though everything in our system is based on a future? You're telling me that what I am doing is good, but that it is the wrong methods, that they are too extreme. Hmm. How extreme is this eviction, then? As I was driven away from the forest, I could see a long line of police cars, machines, eviction tanks, etc., and I knew that it was just a fraction of those that were inside the forest. I almost had to laugh. That's how ridiculous it was. For you have nothing to fight for. You call us extreme because we're different, because we are consistent, because we defend what we believe in, because we can't stop, otherwise we would betray ourselves. We were sitting in the lockdown, could barely move, could barely turn. We could only look at each other, share words of courage and consolation. You came from all sides, slashed the roof over our heads, cut down the walls behind us. You have torn our lives apart. Then you accuse us of violence? You were laughing as we were screaming in panic that you were bringing the life of our friend on the sky pod in danger. We were screaming and screaming, and you cut the rope. Only the friction held it up. We are making you afraid, because we don't fit inside your schemes, because what we are fighting for isn't power or money, but the love of life itself, the wild urge for freedom, and the rage towards those who want to take all of this away. If I give you my identity, I will be let out of here. So probably a lot of you will say, it is my own fault that I am sitting here. But my identity isn't something written on a piece of paper. My identity is that which makes me human, my essence, my soul, all that I have learned in this forest, all that the people there have showed me, all of that which I would lose if I told you who I am, to reduce myself to these few words. I will not use the unjust privilege of a German passport. I will stay in solidarity with those who, because of repression, cannot give their identity. I am a human, and I fight for the preservation of this earth. Everything else is irrelevant. God damn, when the f is that demo? October 6th, 12 noon, Bure, that's B U I R, train station. And now an announcement submitted to us from Portland, Oregon. Quote Tuesday, October 9th, is the inaugural launch of PDX Mobile Food Not Bombs. Recognizing that gentrification disproportionately displaces the poor working class, we seek to go wherever the people are to break bread and share ideas. Join us at 11 a.m. at the intersection of Southeast 82nd and Southeast Division, adjacent to Portland Community College, for a free meal and to find out where the next one will be or how to get involved. A coalition of anti-fascist groups is calling for a unity demonstration against a far-right football hooligan event in London on October 13th. Email ldnantifascists at riseup.net for more info. In Brooklyn, New York, on October 19th, there's a benefit punk show to raise some funds for recently released long-term political prisoners. It's at 8.30 p.m. at Pine Box Rock Shop, and no one will be turned away for lack of funds. 
The anarchist book and propaganda gathering in Santiago, Chile, is taking place October 13th and 14th in the historically rebellious neighborhood La Victoria. Find out more at EncuentroAnarchista.org. And that same weekend, there's an anarchist tattoo and piercing gathering in Pelotas, Brazil. On October 20th and 21st in London, England, instead of an anarchist book fair, comrades there are organizing a decentralized anarchist festival. If you want to be part of it, email anarchistfestival at riseup.net. From October 26th through 28th, there's also an anarchist book fair in Lisbon, Portugal. And the weekend of November 17th and 18th has anarchist book fairs in both Seattle, Washington and Boston, Massachusetts. More at seattleanarchistbookfair.net and bostonanarchistbookfair.org. And riot tourists take note that while the cold starts setting in towards the end of November in North America, things will be heating up on the other side of the equator in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The G20 summit, which faced days of uncontrollable anti-capitalist rioting in Germany last year, is set to begin on November 30th in Buenos Aires. Argentina's economy has been teetering for some time now, and anti-austerity protests have become a regular occurrence. Add to that the militant demonstrations with masks and Molotov cocktails that followed the disappearance of indigenous land rights activist Santiago Maldonado. And I'd say the groundwork is pretty well laid for fierce resistance against the G20 this November. In cooperation with comrades in Germany, France, and elsewhere, CrimeThink has prepared a detailed overview in four languages about the resistance to the G20 summit last year, with an eye towards the summit in Argentina. It's called Tour Compas in Buenos Aires, and you can find it at CrimeThink.com. And lastly, the 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar is now out. The calendar is themed around health slash care, and it features art and writing from current and former political prisoners like David Gilbert and Mike Africa. Find out more at certaindays.org. And that's it for this Hotwire. As always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music. Thanks to our West Coast comrade for the interview. And thanks to Alanis from The Ex-Worker. Stay in touch with us by email at podcast at crimethink.com or follow us on Twitter at Hotwire Weekly. Don't forget to check out all the links, mailing addresses, and useful notes we customize for this episode at crimethink.com. You can subscribe to The Hotwire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ex-Worker. And who knows, maybe that feed will bring you an occasional Ex-Worker episode from time to time. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero. And believe it or not, every Hotwire is radio-ready, with a 29-and-a-half-minute version found in each episode's show notes. So feel free to put the Hotwire on your local airwaves. If you do, let us know so we can plug your station. Stay informed. Stay rebel. Plug into the Hotwire. And welcome back. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is Roman. Big thanks to Pam for stepping in and helping out play the beginning part of the show. This is Roman. You're listening to the Weekly Review here on Mutiny Radio. And that was just a another podcast from Crime Think, which can be found at It's Going Down, which is like an anarchist news source. And I appreciate 
getting information from them and a lot of stories and information that is not published or circulated in corporate media, certainly. So I really appreciate learning a lot and reminding folks that there's a lot of other things happening that we might not hear about. So appreciating the folks who like to share this information. We're going to take a music break. I'll be playing a few more audio clips today uh, on the show. I believe this podcast I was just played got to a lot of different subjects. So uh, yeah, we're going to take it. Well, I I was going to say we're going to take it easy, but I don't really take it easy on this show because there's there's a lot to get to and it makes me really exasperated. So, but we will take a music break. And then we'll get to some more information, and we'll be back uh, after this. So please do stay tuned. It may have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline, but on the Che Guevara Highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying Over the luxury's disappointment so he walks over And he's trying to sympathise with her But he thinks that he should warn her That the third world is just around the corner Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell the first hurdle. only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the 15 fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics He asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment And my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right leap forward Jumbo sales are all There's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the great leap forward Oh, one leap forward, two leaps back Will politics get me to sack Waiting for the great Rock and roll from top of the box to drawing a thumb You're watching the 
Imagine and cut out the middle man Review that was Billy Bragg with Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. And I found myself putting that song on repeat the other day for maybe an hour. It was uh, unplanned, it just happened, and it made me feel a lot better. So, if there's music out there that makes you feel better, by all means, play it, listen to it, share it with other people. It's helpful. Coming up next is an audio clip. And so, recently, the Winnebago County Republican headquarters was vandalized. Well, vandalize is one word for it. Uh, And many folks saw photos of this. Uh, The words rape were plastered all over the outside of it. And this is an interview with a person who has been suspected of vandalizing uh, the Winnebago County Republican headquarters. uh, And the name is uh, Timothy Dam. So we're going to play the audio clip. And if you're interested in checking out the... The, seeing the visual of this, you can check out mystateline.com. I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, someone I know posted this, so wanted to share this. And the reporter is uh, Brittany Toulis, who is a journalist, who a reporter, who uh, wrote about this. So let's, let's hear from uh, Timothy. Oops. And let's take just one moment here while we get the volume up. Uh, Tim Dam, T-I-M-D-A-M-M. And so I pulled up here probably an hour and a half ago, and you were already here. So what, how did you find out about this? Um, I, I saw it. I lived just right up the street. Mm-hmm. So I saw it and just, you know, came down to see what was going on. So you live right up the street. Um, were you up at all last night? Did you notice anything? I was. I had trouble sleeping last night, mm-hmm. you know, just with everything that's been going on with the mm-hmm. Supreme Court and everything, so I didn't sleep well, but I didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. So I did just talk to one guy who was up at, he came outside around three, and he said he saw um, the big shame, but he was tired, he was out a little bit, so he didn't know he was what he was seeing until he came back this morning. Uh-huh. So this was here all night, it seems like. Yeah, pretty much, it seems like. So did you, uh huh. Did you notice that it happened when police started coming here, or did you walk by the corner? Well, I have a dog, so I walk my dog past the Republicans here every day, um, and so I saw it then. So how does it feel to have this happening right across the street from where you live? 
I think it's great, you know, just, I mean, I haven't been great having the Republicans right in my neighborhood, but, you know, that they're labeled, somebody labeled them, you know, for what they are. I'm happy about that. Well, this building isn't just the Republican headquarters, correct? It's got other yeah. inside. Yeah. So is it kind of known as the Republican building, even though there's only... Well, there is. They have a bunch of political signs around the side. Um, you know, Trump and all uh, his ilk. And, you know, it says Winnebago Republicans right there. So as far as who else is in the building, don't really care. Gotcha. And so do you have any, so you're assuming this is a political, politically fueled attack? That's the way I took it. I mean, if you look at the date uh, there, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm assuming it has to do with that. So what does the date mean to you? That was the date that Dr. Ford went to testify in front of Congress and the American people. Okay. And then, yeah, okay. the accused then said some things as well. <laughs> so. And so how jarring is this to kind of see, though? I mean, yes, it's vandalism, but the word rape isn't aggressive. It's, it's hard. It's hard to see, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm an artist myself, so it's hard to not focus on the beauty, I guess. But this is more, you know, it's, it's not about that. Yeah. So do you think they got their message across, whatever they were? I think they did. Yeah. And what do you think their message was behind it? That uh, Republican equals rape. That they support rape, they encourage rape. And, you know, if you rape someone, they will defend you. <laughs> um, is there anything you'd like to add just about the thing, how quickly you hope they clean it up? Because, I mean, even political abuse aside, it's still a pretty big piece of vandalism. You know, I don't know. I hope the guy cleaning it up gets a lot of overtime, you know? Hey, and there's all these police, you know, these police aren't, you know, doing anything that we might not like them to do while they're here doing this. So I'm happy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So that was Tim Dam being interviewed about the vandalized Republican headquarters in Winnebago. And I would suggest that for a lot of these folks who are responsible for their behavior and their decisions, uh, the building being vandalized is so minor compared to they're they're lucky. Let me put it that way. <sighs> So thousands of people have been protesting uh, around the country, and folks in D.C. also were protesting the Kavanaugh nomination. Hundreds of people have been arrested. Thousands of people were protesting. And so I'll read a little bit about that. There's an article in HuffPost. There's also articles elsewhere. What I have right in front of me, though, is from HuffPost from yesterday. Thousands of protesters rally in final push to cancel Kavanaugh. A lot of folks have also... Uh, decided to call, contact the senators who might vote to confirm him. And of course, there's also the many, many of us who are like, why should anyone be in charge of anyone else's bodies regardless? Uh, which I believe the podcast that we played in the beginning of this episode talked about quite a bit where uh, we should all be, we should all have control of our own bodies. It's, it's a no brainer yet. Unfortunately, we have to fucking talk about this. And so there's also just the, 
I just the whole idea that they're, you know, the folks are kind of in a way rooting for the FBI, even though the FBI haven't done a full investigation and also recognizing the history of the FBI, which has infiltrated civil rights groups. And it's again, like somehow looking for the police state to correct for itself, which we know can't happen. And I get that that's a, a nice idea. We would like to think that there's people out there looking to serve and protect us. However, when we look and see who they're serving and protecting, it tends to be rapists in this case. And they are, so the police are out there arresting folks who are, who are protesting instead of the actual people who have committed these heinous crimes. And again, <sighs> there are more people who are, I believe, waking up and recognizing that there, there is no justice in a way and a lot of folks calling for direct action. And uh, we'll read a little bit about this here from Huffington Post. And this was written by Andy Campbell. Capitol Police arrested 302 people. So they arrested the people protesting a rapist and not the actual rapist. That's, that's what's happening here, uh, including the president and all many other folks in positions of power, uh, war criminals, et cetera, et cetera. And for folks who talk about, you know, we talk about the abolition of prison. It's there are folks who are a innocent who are in prison. There are folks who have are there because they can't afford bail. There are folks there for nonviolent offenses. There are folks there for uh, what's considered drugs, even though it could be medicine. There are folks there for sex work and other other actions that do not harm anybody. Yet they are incarcerated while folks who literally plan wars and carry out carry out wars are free to roam the streets and also are in positions of power. So that's how backwards it is. And it's difficult for a lot of us to have faith in any kind of system where that just continues to be the case. <sighs> so let's read about this. Capitol Police arrested 302 people. Uh, this is the last hurrah, the final fight, the desperate plea, cancel Kavanaugh. Thousands of protesters, including sexual assault, sexual assault survivors and their allies, marched on Washington from the e East uh, Barrett uh, Prettyman Federal Courthouse, where Kavanaugh currently works, to the Hart Senate office building in a last-ditch effort to appeal to senators to vote no on his confirmation. It reminds me, of course, also of the idea that you can't... I mean, if folks are going to oppress you, they have no fucking morals in the first place. So you, it's, it's really difficult to say, hey, please stop oppressing me. That doesn't... you. It, it doesn't necessarily work by asking. You have to fucking take power. <sighs> As crowds filled the Senate halls, police began making arrests for civil disobedience. Capitol Police had arrested 302 people for quote-unquote unlawfully demonstrating at the Senate office buildings as of Thursday afternoon at 3.30 p.m., Eastern Time, police detained 293 people at the Hart Senate Office Building. Nine more people were detained nearly two hours later at the Dirksen Senate Office Building. In a statement to Huffington Post, police said they were processing and releasing the individuals on site. Videos at the protest show long lines of demonstrators who were under arrest. Uh, they named some famous people. Um, I mean, like, thanks for showing up and, like, perhaps your millions of followers are now aware of something they might not have been aware of. Although... I dislike the idea of celebrating celebrities in terms of putting their, their bodies on the line when that's something that people do every fucking day. Busloads of women, and I am, of course, interjecting my own comments into this article, busloads of women from other parts of the country, including survivors from West Virginia, made their way to D.C. in the morning for demonstrations that would take place throughout the day. Uh, Caitlin Gaffin 30 was one of them. She was among the nine protesters arrested in West Virginia while occupying the campaign headquarters of Senator Joe Manchin. 
who's a Democrat from West Virginia, for more than 10 hours on Monday. Today, with the help of the ACLU, she and several dozen other assault survivors met ally and allies met with Manchin to tell their stories. She said Manchin was teary-eyed as he listened, but made no indication of which way he'd vote. Why are these people... Okay. I've been here for 10 minutes, and I'm already losing it. Why are these people in any position of power... They can't fucking decide whether or not how they're going to vote. That's no. Okay. The group had another meeting scheduled with Senator Shelley Moore Capito, a Republican from West Virginia, but she never showed up. Gaffin said, hmm. And they have a, a video clip here. And uh, there I have a quote. It feels like one of our last shots. This is the most we can do right now. And I'm going to interject and say there are other things. Uh, collective unconscious. I won't necessarily say it out loud, but we can think of other things that we can do that haven't been done yet. Drop everything and try to talk face to face. Thinking of some other things. Okay. Gaffin told HuffPost on Thursday morning, we're going to share our stories. We're hoping to be able to appeal to them in some way to show how personal this was. This is for their constituents, for everyone in DC speeches. Uh, and they mentioned other celebrities. Uh, there's a hashtag at cancel Kavanaugh protests. Uh, that are slated across the country from Portland, Oregon to New York City. Activist groups across the country have been holding demonstrations all week, ever since Kavanaugh lied under oath during testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, ever since Dr. Christine Blasey Ford cried in front of millions of TV viewers when she publicly accused him of forcing himself on her in high school. Since then, other women have come forward against the judge, Many and many of his former classmates have tried to distance themselves from him or backed up claims by his alleged victims. The vote was delayed on by last Friday by Senator Jeff Flake, Republican from Arizona, who called for an FBI investigation into the accusations against Kavanaugh with less than a week to look into them. Uh, the Bureau focused only on a few allegations, which reportedly included an interview with another of Kavanaugh's accusers, Deborah Ramirez, not included in the investigation were Kavanaugh Ford classmate Kavanaugh. Ford, classmates who had told the press that he was a sloppy drunk in school or allegations that he lied under oath about his excessive drinking. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, I am not literally spitting, but mimicking spitting, uh, at Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, vowed that a full Senate vote will happen this week. There's already talk that the short delay requested by Flake was a sham meant to make it easier for Republicans to vote in Kavanaugh with an unscathed conscience or character. And also Carla Herreria contributed to this report. And I believe there have been updates so far. So um, if we're able to add more information by the end of the show in the next hour, I will definitely provide them. So thanks to everyone out there protesting and hexing and whatever you can do. All right. Speaking of folks protesting and striking and all that, there's a lot of strikes happening. We don't necessarily hear about it in the news because we don't. Uh, the AFL-CIO has uh, yesterday reported that the New York Yankees have crossed a picket line at the Marriott Hotel in Boston, and many Marriott uh, hotel workers are striking throughout the country. And the Yankees uh, crossed a picket line, which is a big, a big no-no. And also found out something very interesting uh, from my dad. Uh, apparently, the, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox were the last two teams in Major League Baseball to integrate their teams. So in the words of my dad, it's too bad they both can't lose. <sighs> so the AFL-CIO, you can uh, follow them on Twitter. It's, you know, it's also the big, big union. <sighs> it's kind of, it's a, it's a no-brainer to not cross the picket line, and yet they did. 
So boo to the Yankees. That's my sentiment. Ugh. Next up, speaking of other folks who are striking, McDonald's, Uber Eats, and Weatherspoon workers strike over pay. And this is from October 4th from BBC News. Uh, Uber Eats riders and a small number of workers from JD Weatherspoon, McDonald's, and TGI Fridays have been staging walkouts in a pay dispute. Protests were protests were being held in several UK cities, along with a rally in London. And I've also heard that folks uh, in the United States are striking at McDonald's as well. The initial, excuse me, the industrial action was organized in tandem with strikes by fast food workers on four continents. Wow. Uber Eats, JD Weatherspoon, TGI Fridays, and McDonald's have all defended their record on pay. The rally in London's Leicester Square was addressed by TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady and Shadow Chancellor John McDonald. Mr. McDonald said, our message to exploitative employers is that we are coming for you. Separately, about 50 Uber Eats couriers, Uber drivers, and reporters temporarily occupied the lobby of Uber's London headquarters in a protest supported by the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain, IWGB, and the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. What are the workers striking about? Let's see. Uber Eats workers want to be paid five quid per delivery and a further one quid per mile for each delivery. Uh, These latest strikes follow a series of walkouts by Uber Eats drivers last month, sparked by the company reducing its minimum payment per delivery from 4.26, let's just say 4 quid 26 cents to 3 quid and 50 cents. I haven't said the word quid in a while. It sounds unusual to my mouth. Okay. Stream of consciousness here. Why staff at McDonald's, TGIs, and Weatherspoons are striking. Uber Eats defended its pay scheme, arguing that the majority of its couriers use delivery work to supplement existing incomes. Last week, couriers using our app in cities across the UK took home an average of 9 to 10 quid per hour during mealtimes, with many also using other delivery apps, the firm said in a statement. The fact that Uber Eats drivers have decided to strike on the same day as us shows that low pay is an issue that affects people across the industry said a spokesman, I'll say spokesperson, uh, from the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union. Haven't heard of that union. So that's the BFAWU. Workers at WD Weatherspoon, McDonald's, and TJ Fridays want to be paid 10 quid an hour. McDonald's denied support for the union among its staff Denied, excuse me, McDonald's denied support for the union among its staff was increasing. All restaurants remain open as usual today, despite frustrating attempts by protesters. I'm not going to listen to that. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, I'm not going to, no. Okay, <sighs> J.D. Weatherspoon has previously said it had announced pay rises worth 20 million quid last year and 27 million for this year. TGI Fridays said all its team members were paid at or above the national minimum wage hourly rate while pay rates were regularly reviewed. It adds that its workers were also allowed to keep all tips they received. What do union leaders say? Ms. O'Grady of the TUC told the BBC's Today program that the strike was small but growing. She said some modern hospitality employers and technology firms were using a very old form of exploitation. We need the public and communities to support us. We are seeing growing public concern. The companies in question could and should afford to award a pay raise, Ms. O'Grady added, which places were affected. Strikes by Uber Eats drivers are taking place in London, Bristol, Brighton, Newcastle, 
Plymouth, Southampton, Glasgow, and Cardiff, according to the IWW Union. Workers at two other spoon pubs in Brighton were expected to strike, the BFAWU said. They are being joined by workers from McDonald's outlets in London, Cambridge, and Watford, and TGI Friday staff in Milton Keynes and two London branches. The strikes are being held to coincide with industrial action over pay by fast food workers in Chile, Colombia, the U.S., Belgium, Italy, Germany, the Philippines, and Japan. Yay! Go! Strike! Yay! Support to the strikers. All power to the people. Ha! Huh. So again, this article was found at bbc.com. Okay, it's 111. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. If you would like to have a show here, that's a possibility. We have different slots available here at the station, Monday through Sunday, every day of the week. There are slots available. You get a two-hour slot per week. You pay dues. You have the equipment here. You do your own show. It's pretty awesome. If you're interested in renting out the space for a one-time thing, that's also a possibility. So please do check out mutinyradio.fm, find our schedule, contact Pam, the station director, and you can find a, a time to rent. It's great, affordable space here. You get the you get a live broadcast. You get to keep the, the recording of it in the studio here. There's also a room. We have a lovely room here, so you can do a live show with an audience. It's pretty great. So if you're interested, please, again, check out mutinyradio.fm. If you appreciate, then, well, I don't necessarily appreciate. Well, let me, let me, let me rewind a little bit. If you would like to support the show and are able to donate, please do so. We have a Patreon account set up, and big thank you to all the folks who are able to donate. It helps go to pay the dues here and to compensate for time and labor, which is super much appreciated. And if that's something that you're able to do from anywhere from a dollar a month and up, that would be awesome. Check out patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. It's much appreciated. Coming up next, I feel like playing some music. And then we're going to do go play another audio track. I'm speaking very quickly as I had a lot of coffee today. I'm sharing some personal details here and wanting to get, there's a lot of information to get in. And this, I have to promote, I don't have to promote anything, honestly. However, I will promote Minneapolis Public Radio, The Current, plays really great music. And they also have another station called Purple Current, which plays music by Prince, anything involved with Prince, uh, music inspired by Prince and music that's Prince inspired. or just every it's great purple current so i heard the song the other day they have one hour a day that's just print songs like and it's a lot of covers and b-sides and a lot of other songs and live performances that one might not know so i heard this and i was like oh this is really good so i wanted to share this with everyone and then uh after this we'll have some more
All right. So that was Prince with the cover of One of Us. Oh, it's so good. You can find that on YouTube. And I believe it's also been released elsewhere. So check that out uh, if you're able. Oh, so good. So coming up next, I'm going to play an audio clip. I feel like it's there's so much information out there that we don't know that's purposely kept from us and or folks aren't allowed to tell and or just... <sighs> don't know how to really much how much more to introduce it just uh i appreciate learning and also recognizing the land we're on we're on a lonely land and recognizing the history and so this is a uh i guess more of like a speech um um that goes over quite a lot of really informative information about the anarchist movement and as well as it's uh, as well as indigenous resistance, and I found this on the It's Going Down website, and it's a resistance. Um, excuse me, I want to give like the the real. It's a uh, like about colonialism, democracy, and fascism, and it's a uh, Gord Hill is the is the speaker, and there's an interview with Gord um, from It's Going Down, and this and featured on the site as well. They also have a video from a speech he gave that goes into the history and so i wanted to play this as a way of informing myself informing listeners uh there's a lot of information that um some of us don't know and so and maybe people do know <sighs> i don't know why i'm so yeah maybe it's the coffee maybe there's just so much happening and it's also difficult to do things justice sometimes so you just have to play it for what it is so if you're interested in finding this again it's a gourd hill which is g-o-r-d-h-i-l-l is the name and it's going down.org um plays an interview with gourd as well as this video that i'm going to play and that'll probably take us towards the till the end of the podcast thanks again so much for listening this is the weekly review if you're listening for the first time thanks for listening it's a different show every week different style sometimes i talk more sometimes i play more footage sometimes there's interviews there's a lot of different things that happen here so i really do want to say thank you so much for listening and thank you to all the folks out there for <sighs> being as kind as you can and for fighting the good fight and for all the ancestors and all the folks who are no longer with us who gave their lives and bodies to make it so we could at least get here today. And I know things seem very bleak for a lot of us. And at the same time, there's so many people around the world who are fighting collectively for a better world for everyone. So offering gratitude for everyone who is for us doing that. So yeah, I'm gonna play this and then we'll wrap up the show afterwards. So stay tuned. Yo, this is Gilakasala. My name is Gord Hill. I'm from the Pukwakiwak Nation. And my territory is on the uh, northern part of Vancouver Island. Uh, first, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, I'm on Ganyangahaga uh, territory. I'm, or at least that's what the Mohawks have told me. <laughs> um, yeah, we just, uh, camera kind of throws me off. Um, yeah, me and my partner, we just arrived uh, yesterday, early afternoon. Uh, it's been about three and a half days on the Greyhound, and uh, I would not recommend doing that. <laughs> it's about my third time doing this trip, but I think I've learned my lesson now, and I won't be doing it again. <clears throat> uh, the tonight's theme, Indigenous Resistance and Anarchism. Um, although I've been involved in the both movements, Indigenous Resistance and Anarchist uh, Social Movements, for maybe over 20 years now, I have never really done a presentation about these two concepts. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, at first glance, they seem like two uh, 
concepts that are worlds apart because anarchism is a, a European uh, concept, uh, a, a European idea. Um, and of course, indigenous resistance is uh, is indigenous to the Americas, uh, as far as what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> I think in North America, uh, the clearest example we have of a relationship between indigenous resistance and anarchism is found in Mexico, uh, and particularly uh, with Emiliano Zapata, who was a, a Nahul, I believe, uh, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but he was an indigenous person, and he was very much influenced by uh, Ricardo Flores Magnon, Magon? Magon. I probably, yeah, Magon. Uh, who was an anarchist from Oaxaca in southern Mexico. And along with uh, uh, this person uh, who, it was from uh, Ricardo uh, Magnon that the, the rallying cry of the Zapatista revolution, of the Mexican revolution came from, which was land and liberty, land and freedom, tierra y libertad. Um, and so anarchism has had a very strong influence, I think, on indigenous uh, movements in Mexico. Um, Zapata was also uh, exposed to the ideas of Kropotkin. Um, so I think that's probably the strongest uh, connection that there is uh, between these two ideas. Uh, <coughs> I think uh, you know, within the indigenous movements, uh, there's not a lot of indigenous people, uh, activists or organizers, who would identify as being an anarchist. Um, <clears throat> but I think there's a lot of uh, commonalities that you can see between the two concepts. Because indigenous uh, tribal peoples, uh, for the most part, were organized uh, as autonomous, uh, decentralized villages who had relationships with other villages and shared, uh, well they shared a common language, a common uh, culture and history, and this was the indigenous nation. Um, but these nations were, as I mentioned, uh, autonomous and decentralized, and there was no uh, centralized authority, and there was no state institution. And this informs the indigenous resistance that is occurring today, and the indigenous culture that uh, still continues to uh, exist, and I think you can see with anarchism, it promotes uh, autonomous, decentralized self-organization. Um, within, uh, you know, there are some exceptions within the indigenous uh, peoples, especially the, those that began to uh, establish uh, civilization, like the Mexica and the Inca, who may have had, a, who have, a, may have had a more centralized kind of authority. And, uh, you know, when just thinking about that, the history of the Mexica, when they encountered the uh, Spanish conquistadors, they were a very large, uh, large nation, uh, maybe 20-something million uh, people. But they fell to the Spaniards within 10 or 15 years. You know, a lot of it through uh, disease, but also just uh, the Spanish uh, method of warfare and the Spaniards' ability to recruit a lot of the native people, the native tribes that had been uh, more or less subjugated by the Mexica. So they were, uh, 300 Spaniards were able to organize along with thousands of indigenous peoples to attack the Mexica. And they were very vulnerable, the Mexica were very vulnerable to decapitation because once their ruling class was captured or killed, 
the whole uh, system kind of crumbled. And if you compare that to um, some of the Plains Indian nations, let's say like the, the Lakota and the Cheyenne, who had a, a, a more traditional or a more uh, grassroots indigenous form of self-organization, autonomous decentralized villages, and they were able to resist the, the U.S. expansion for decades uh, using guerrilla warfare. So that's an example of the, the strength, the, the resiliency of the autonomous, uh, decentralized form of uh, self-organization. And I think, uh, you know, that in Canada, from my experience over the last uh, couple of decades, uh, the anarchist movement has given some of the, the strongest solidarity to indigenous struggles. Because I think of this, uh, this, this similar forms of uh, self-organizing, autonomy, decentralization, uh, this kind of stuff. I think uh, within indigenous communities too, there's a lot of uh, there's a strong emphasis on individual freedom, but within uh, a collective kind of group. Uh, so there's a balance that's kind of established between the individual freedom and the the need of the of a group of a communal group to have, uh, to have uh, good uh, relations between the people within it. Um, and I think that also corresponds to a lot of anarchist practice, where you want to have uh, a lot of individual freedom, but you also think of the collective group, like, you know, how do we, how can we, because you know when we all work together, we're much stronger. So I think uh, that's another commonality. I think you might find like with Marx and Engels, they studied the Haudenosaunee. Uh, they studied uh, some people who had studied the Haudenosaunee. I forget what this person's name was. was Morgan. Morgan. He wrote a, a large uh, document documentation about how the Haudenosaunee uh, organized. And this was uh, a big inspiration for Marx and Engels when they were developing the idea of communism. Uh, so that's uh, another kind of example, even though, you know, we're talking about anarchism. You know, com you know it's kind of a, a communal type of uh, movement as well. There's uh, also, another, to, to talk about some of the differences of our, our current situation, a lot of the indigenous, or I would say maybe all indigenous resistance uh, is, a, is based uh, in a community and even family uh, units. A lot of the communities where there is resistance from indigenous people, it's a... Uh, it's a, it's a one or more families that are the basis of the, of the struggle. Um, and that is different from the anarchist movement, which is a, a diverse social movement that has brought people together. Uh, you, know, you, you may have conflicts with your family about your politics. But in, in a lot of uh, indigenous uh, movements, when they arise, uh, the, the whole family can be uh, the, the foundation of the struggle. So that's uh, something of a difference as well. <clears throat> uh, for me, uh, the two concepts of indigenous resistance and anarchism, I identify them, or the way I work with them is I have uh, to promote the ideas of anti-colonial and anti-capitalist resistance. Because the anti-colonial, um, uh, acknowledges the, the history of colonialism and also the anti-colonial resistance of indigenous peoples and the anti-capitalist uh, part um, acknowledges the current society we live in the system that we're uh, living in and how it's organized 
and the, the class divisions within it. So to me, the two concepts are very important to have intertwined because that's how you know we acknowledge the history of colonialism and, and the theft of land and genocide. And uh, also, the, it's, uh, the anti-capitalism is also like uh, a unifying, um, a unifying idea of the people uh, in this society who are, uh, you know, exploited through the class or through uh, gender, the patriarchal, the patriarchal aspect of this system, the white supremacy of the system. Uh, these kinds of things, I think, is, are included in uh, well, in both anti-colonial and anti-capitalist uh, analyses. I think also with the um, in terms of like anti-colonialism, the to capitalism arose through the process of colonization, of course, because uh, when the European uh, states invaded the Americas, this is what uh, revived a dying Europe. Because of course Europe was dying, it was suffering from overpopulation, uh, widespread poverty, social conflict, wars, and disease. And it was the invasion of the Americas in particular which brought in uh, all kinds of resources back to Europe. And it revived the dying uh, states of Europe and led to the Industrial Revolution, which was the, you know, the motor of capitalist expansion into imperialism. So, just uh, considering that, this is how the anti-colonialism and anti-capitalism uh, converge to give us a more comprehensive understanding and a more comprehensive resistance, uh, you know, for where we're living here in North America. So, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the limitations of the anarchist uh, movements in regards to indigenous uh, resistance. Um, so a lot of indigenous people, including even in the re indigenous resistance, uh, if you work in solidarity, you may encounter hostility from some indigenous people against anarchism because they don't understand what anarchism is or they're socialized uh, and also exposed to the corporate media and the government statements and whatnot that attack anarchism. So there, there may be a hostility towards anarchism. Um, also, there are anarchists have, uh, have a, a kind of culture uh, of their own. And this culture, uh, you can see it in symbols, slogans, sometimes in uh, the style of clothing. Uh, the way of relating to one another is a culture of the anarchist movement. And sometimes this is uh, difficult for indigenous people to, uh, to grasp or to accept. Um, I remember one uh, indigenous, uh, long time indigenous activist was kind of hostile towards anarchists. And he would always say, what the anarchists got to do, you got to get a haircut. You gotta take a bath, and you gotta stop eating out of garbage cans. <laughs> so he's got a he's got a certain concept and a certain uh, prejudice, maybe a different lifestyle, right? But for me, I always I always kind of saw the anarchists as a as a tribe almost, with their own culture and stuff like that. So that's just uh, an idea, I think. Uh, or the thing to be aware of. Um, 
indigenous, a lot of indigenous movements. Like I was involved in the native youth movement for many years, and uh, the common concept of anarchists are, are that they're hippies. And uh, in terms of working in alliance and that, uh, a lot of indigenous people, they see any kind of non-indigenous people that are coming around to be in solidarity with them. They call them supporters. And I think uh, uh, white guilt can play a part in this, where uh, if this is the white guilt idea, like that you have privilege and power and whatnot because you're white, well, some of you are white, uh, in this society, it can be a good motivating uh, thing to, to think about doing solidarity, but it's, um, but in the long term, it will be counterproductive as if, if that's the only motivating uh, thing, because it's, it, it encourages the idea among indigenous activists that you're just a supporter uh, to come. And I've seen a lot of uh, indigenous uh, movements uh, try to exploit non-indigenous people who come in. And the non-indigenous people often uh, uh, enable this as well. Um, because I think uh, when, you, when you think about solidarity, and solidarity is when you see that your struggle is connected to another, and that it's important to uh, maybe uh, build an alliance with this other movement. Um, uh, kind of more, uh, almost as an equal thing, right? Because the anarchist movement, an anti-capitalist struggle, is a legitimate struggle. It can be, uh, like I said, it can be more comprehensive or uh, deeper if it has an anti-colonial analysis to it. But um, you, the anarchists uh, have a legitimate movement that should not be subordinated to another movement, but you should have the concept that you, you want to build an alliance. It's like you're a force and you see another force that is fighting this common enemy. So you want to make an alliance uh, on that concept is, in my opinion, more healthy in the long run. Um, also, indigenous uh, social movements, you'll see a lot of times, they don't even want to call their action, whatever it is, a blockade or whatever. They don't want to call it a protest. You know, you've seen in Six Nations, the Six Nations people were very, uh, they were very adamant that they were not protesting because, and you know, what they, they called their action was a land reclamation. And, you know, there's some truth in it, but it's also just kind of uh, word games. But you can, uh, for me, I can understand why they wanted to reject this idea of protest and also the term activist. Because to them, a lot of indigenous people, this protesting and activism is just kind of act, acting. It's like acting out. Uh, it's, there's nothing substantial to it. It's not very, uh, it's not going to go very far. It's just kind of going through the motions. Even when the anarchists have, like for me, the anarchists are like the, the, the more, uh, they're more uh, like a warrior uh, force of the non-native social movements, right? Because the black bloc, let's say, is a militant uh, going to go to fight uh, the police or to carry out direct actions. This is like a concept of a warrior. And the, 
one of the problems with indigenous uh, peoples is because they're just being exposed to the corporate media who demonize the black bloc. And, and because it, this, this idea of attacking property and whatnot is such a threat to the system, they don't want other people to adopt these methods. But, um, you know, I think one thing that really, uh, it kind of broke some aspects of this was Oka in 1990. Because then for indigenous peoples, we had an example of a, a modern day kind of warrior force which wore the masks and a uniform, which was the co uh, camouflage combat clothing. I'll just mention uh, something about the solidarity uh, that has come from anarchist, the anarchist movement. Uh, like I mentioned, I think some of the strongest solidarity has come from anarchists for indigenous uh, resist resistance. Um, I think back to, like, I think of the, the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee was established in Vancouver, because Leonard Peltier, his Amer American Indian movement, you know, he was sought for the killing of the two FBI agents in South, South Dakota. Um, the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee is set up in Vancouver, and a lot of anarchists uh, helped do a lot of the work for the LPDC at the time, uh, including uh, so many people who went on to, they formed the, the urban, the guerrilla group Direct Action, Women's Fire Brigade. These people were, you know, they were really um, influenced by indigenous struggles. You can see that in the communiques of direct action and their idea of ecological resistance. Um, the the Lubacan Cree in northern Alberta, they had a very, very successful campaign in the, the late 80s, early 90s, the mid 90s. Uh, Lubacan. Lubacan Cree in northern Alberta. And they, their, their, uh, their solidarity group was the Friends of the Lubicon, and they had a very, very successful campaign uh, boycotting Daishowa, which was a large uh, paper and pulp company operating in Lubicon territory. They, uh, the Friends of the Lubicon were started by um, anarchists in Toronto. Um, during the anti-Olympics campaign that we had in Vancouver from about 2006 to 2010, a lot of the solidarity and the actions across the country were carried out by anarchists. The, the torch disruptions, uh, including in Montreal, where the Olympic torch was disrupted, um, in other places across the country too, anarchists were the ones who engaged in that kind of solidarity. Um, that slogan, no justice on stolen land, was one of the first times uh, an indigenous slogan, or a slogan relating to indigenous resistance, it was the first time it was carried out on a national level in this country. So it's something significant, I think, uh, historically. Um, uh, just to close, uh, I really uh, recommend that people to um, look into this book. It's called Dispersing Power, Anti-State Resistance. Or sorry, Social Movements as Anti-State Forces. Um, Dispersing Power is written by uh, Raul Zibeci. Zibeci, yeah. Um, it's uh, an analysis of uh, Bolivia and the Aymara people, uh, particularly in the city of El Alto, uh, from in the early 2000s up till about 2005. And it, it analyzes how these this grassroots indigenous uh, social movement arose and how it organized, self-organized itself in the in the urban uh, areas. But they self-organized uh, their own, their community councils 
logistics, communications, uh, medical aid, as part of an urban insurrection, where they took control of parts of the city and forced the police and the government out. And it was all autonomous, uh, decentralized form of organization. And I don't think they mentioned the word anarchist once in this book. It's, it's just their traditional indigenous way of organizing that, they, that they, they used for their resistance against a number of plans or policies of the state in Bolivia. And it's, uh, it's a very uh, inspiring um, uh, story or account, but it's also very uh, revealing uh, because if you are if you think as an anarchist and you you read this book, you'll see the the commonalities that I've been trying to describe between a grassroots indigenous uh, resistance and the anarchist social movement. I don't really have much more to say. Uh, yeah, like I've been involved in both indigenous and anarchist uh, movements uh, for about over 20 years. Uh, Sometimes I was more involved in one than the other. You know, like when I was involved more with the Native Youth Movement, I didn't have too much association with uh, anarchists. Um, unless there was something like, like in the Summit of the Americas in 2001, like I was in working with Native Youth Movement, but I came to Quebec City to participate in, in that. Um, during the uh, anti-Olympics campaign, it was a little bit of a, a convergence of the two things for me, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, the things that I mainly do. So I have the two comic books that have been uh, produced by Arsenal Pulp Press in Vancouver, the 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance comic book and the anti-capitalist resistance comic book. So those are kind of like the, the two uh, the two main things, that I, the two main uh, areas that I have engaged myself in. Um, so, I guess maybe a part of my role is within the anarchist movement is to share this, uh, these ideas about indigenous resistance and uh, you know the, the, the connections, the interconnections between uh, struggles, and then within the indigenous movement. I hope I can uh, contribute to radicalizing the indigenous movements, uh, especially in terms of developing the anti-capitalist analysis. Because uh, anti-colonial doesn't necessarily mean anti-capitalist. Eh? Like, there was a lot of anti-colonial liberation movements that weren't uh, necessarily anti-capitalist, I think. Um, so again, for me, it's important that the two are, you know, that the two concepts are always presented. Um, well, I don't have too much more to say, so uh, I guess if there's any questions or comments, I could take those. So interested by the indigenous struggles, but you became more with Oka. Yeah. Uh, and but you was an artist before. Can you explain explain a bit more your your road or? In the early '80s, I was in the Army Reserve. I was uh, in an infantry regiment. And I was going through training, and I just moved to Vancouver with my mother. And so, and one of my cousins was really into punk. So I started hanging out with him, and I started listening to a, a punk radio show in the city. And I got exposed to ideas 
I don't know, I ended up becoming involved in a solidarity group with El Salvador, with uh, the FMLN, Ferrabundu Marti uh, National Liberation Front, which is, of course, uh, a communist, an armed communist uh, guerrilla organization in El Salvador. I had no clue what, you know, I, I had no idea that's what they were. The, also, the solidarity group I was in, involved with were all communists. Uh, I didn't know that either. <laughs> I began to uh, associate with some anarchists in the city in Vancouver. They were they were producing a journal called No Picnic, and uh, they had an anarchist black cross. And they, uh, I traveled with some of them to the anarchist gathering in Toronto in 1988. And that was I met Jean uh, Weir, who had was doing Elephant Editions, and she had the book from Riot the Insurrection by Alfredo Bernano. And that was when I became uh, more involved in anarchist uh, stuff, anarchist movement. And I would go, we would organize rallies. And I was I was publishing a little punk anarchist punk zine, and uh, oh, that was my main kind of focus, anarchist punk. Until 1990, Oka, uh, when that happened, because that was very inspiring, especially as a militant anarchist, a militant indigenous anarchist. To see this indigenous, uh, you know, insurgency kind of thing happening, like that was really inspiring. So after that, I began to focus more on indigenous uh, resistance. But I always associated, kept an association with uh, the anarchist um, movements too. And in the early 1990s, the Toronto, like you, you guys, you know, Montreal is the big uh, anarchist headquarters in North America right now. <laughs> but in the, uh, the early mid 90s, it was Toronto. You would not believe it if you went to Toronto. <laughs> Toronto was very advanced. Like they were, they were uh, forming some of the first uh, cohesive black blocks in North America. The anti-racist action, uh, very militant, very well organized. Uh, did a lot of really good work. Um, so anyway, through the 90s, I, I kept my associations, but in the mid, mid 90s, uh, the Gustafson Lake Siege in 1995 was a, another big thing for me because it was, uh, it was occurring in 100 Mile House. It's in the central interior of BC, just outside a 100 Mile House. It's a small little town, but that's where I was born. So that was like, I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. I'll put my little, my birthplace on the map through this indigenous armed resistance against RCMP and stuff like that. So yeah, through the years, I kind of go back and forth between anarchist and indigenous resistance. Um, it's been a good uh, way to do my, my politics, I guess. Uh, um, yeah, so any other questions? Uh, yeah. Yes. You mentioned a little earlier that uh, maybe one of the re the reason why uh, the anarchist movement and the anti-Jesuit movement is, does not associate that much is uh, because the anarchist does not make that much importance to the race and think that race importance is created by capitalists. Uh, I'm not too sure I fully get like why would the indigenous the indigenous uh, tribes don't want to associate with that idea. You developed a little bit on that. I think uh, perhaps indigenous, as some indigenous people may, uh, you know, they look at the anarchist movement, and there's no, there's no real, they don't see the this uh, analysis of 
indigenous self-determination incorporated into the anarchist analysis, I guess, maybe. Um, you know, within mainstream society, it's hard for the, the society to look at anarchism and to get it. And it's just as much, it's just as difficult for indigenous people to do that. To, um, but I, I think there's more potential within indigenous peoples because of the culture that most indigenous people have in terms of how their societies were, are, were organized before colonization, which was as autonomous, decentralized village units with the family as a, a core of it, but still autonomous, decentralized villages. So, uh, you know, to me, it's very inspiring to see. Uh, you know, during the anti-Olympics campaign, there was a real. You know, that I, that I thought was a really good example of this kind of anti-colonial, anti-capitalist resistance, kind of meshed together and pushing forward. Slowly starting to associate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from the context of anarchism and indigenous resistance, how do you see that? Well, I think. Uh, you know the. The concept of elders in the indigenous community, of course, is very important because these are the holders of knowledge and wisdom that they've gained through life experience. So it's very important. Uh, I think they, there was always uh, a desire to consult elders to get advice or, uh, you know, for them to share this knowledge. I don't think there was really uh, the idea that the elders were going to dictate that this is what is to be done. Because in indigenous communities, it's very, very hard for someone to come along and impose decisions on the community. Uh, even the, the people who are uh, hereditary chiefs, as they, you know, they're called, the hereditary leaders, like they had no power or authority to coerce or to dictate the policies or anything. And in fact, uh, leaders who tried to do that would often find themselves ostracized. Uh, the people just would not follow. And it's the same today. Like there's, uh, it's very, uh, it's almost like herding sheep or herding cats when it comes to, it's the same with the anarchists too, right? It's a really similar uh, thing. So, <clears throat> yeah, the, uh, the idea of uh, that there was an authority in the indigenous community that will make decisions for the community without, it, I don't think that, that's not really how it really was. And in the communal living, because you know, indigenous communities were uh, communally based. And when you have uh, a social organization like that, people are held accountable for their actions. They're not, they can't uh, hide from the community. They can't gain uh, benefits from outside you know, in a traditional uh, indigenous community. Nowadays, it's a very different situation because the band council, the chief and council, they gain their power and authority from outside the community. And so they don't have, they can't be held accountable by the community. So they're, I think uh, traditionally, like, they're, they're not, you can even uh, read accounts from the early, uh, in uh, what became the, the colony of Virginia, you know, like Captain John Smith and Pocahontas, Pocahontas and all that, those early settlers, when they were describing the indigenous communities, the, the, the different uh, tribes that were in that area, you know, they would call the chiefs uh, kings and stuff like that. But they would also notice that the kings couldn't do anything unless the people willed it. You know, there is a concept of the early European settlers 
that there is always this rigid structure and that there is always a chief at the top, but that is not the reality. Um, and you won't find it in indigenous communities today, except maybe in the band council, the chief and council system imposed under the Indian Act. In some different situations, this concept of the elder is uh, is it really abused? Because there are people who go along, who go around and. Uh, like in the tent city we had in Vancouver, the Olympic tent village against the Olympics, you know, we had a camp set up in downtown area, and there was an elders kind of council set up, and there was like people who'd run around and say, uh, like, they were like, they are just such little weasels, but they would always go and say, no, you can't have a fire, because the elders said so. And it was, it was uh, very disturbing to see that kind of abuse, but... Uh, any other questions? Could you tell us maybe about the, the current struggles that are happening in BC? Yeah, I think I'm going to do a lot of talking about that at this event on the 27th, but right now the... Uh, the main uh, struggles are going on are against the pipelines. Uh, maybe you've all heard of the Enbridge pipeline. This is a very uh, important struggle that's going on right now because it, it's uh, proposing to have a pipeline basically going from uh, across the province to the, the coast. And then there's going to be these huge oil tankers that are going to cruise through this, uh, this narrow strait out to the open ocean where this oil and gas is going to be exported either to Asian markets or down into the U.S. So this is a really, really big concern for indigenous peoples along the route, the proposed route of the Enbridge pipeline, and all along the coast. Because all along the coast, the native people the, the ocean is still a, a very, very important source of food. A very important part of the culture is the oceans. And there's been experiences with oil spills in the past. The Exxon Valdez, which was a large oil tanker that went aground in uh, 88 or 89, I think, a massive oil spill. It's still, uh, it's still affecting these this region in northern BC and southern Alaska. It's still having a toxic effect on the environment there, and that's like that's like over 20 years ago or whatever that this spill occurred. Eh? And the, the Exxon Valdez is a small oil tanker compared to what they want to have going up and down the coast. Uh, so Enbridge is a very, uh, also in 2006 there was uh, a ferry that sunk in Hartley Bay, um, which rele released a bunch of oil into the ocean in that area. And then people watched the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which was, uh, I think it really, really uh, scared people on the coast of BC to watch what happened in the Gulf of Mexico. So this anti-Enbridge pipeline movement is very large in BC, uh, among the settler population and among the native people. In fact, in the, the northern BC, where this, this pipeline is proposed, it's seen the, the largest mobilization of native people in that region ever. Like hundreds of people coming out to rallies, like they have never done this kind of thing before. So that's very significant. One thing about it is the the band councils are really involved in this anti-Enbridge thing. So that's going to have its pro its own problems. But there are uh, there are six or seven other proposed pipelines to go through BC to the coast. Uh, one of the major ones that we're involved with, and the anarchists in Vancouver and Victoria are involved with, is the uh, 
is against the Pacific Trails pipeline, which is a natural gas pipeline they want to build from uh, Prince George to the coast near Kitimat. Um, and uh, the main group that we're working with is a Wet'suwet'en group, the Wet'suwet'en uh, Nation. It's the Unistaten clan, and they have set up a camp. They've built uh, cabins in the in the path of this proposed pipeline, which shares the same similar right of way as the Enbridge pipeline. So they see the Pacific Trails pipeline as being uh, a trailblazer for Enbridge, even though uh, a lot of the bands opposed the band councils oppose Enbridge.